Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, anyone who has been in a classroom in the last 25 years has heard someone, perhaps themselves, worry about the effects of digital distraction on students' attention span, and perhaps even on the minds of students. In the 90s, there are arguments about whether professors should allow laptops for note-taking, which now seems very quaint. Now we're wondering if Zoom turns us into zombies, or zombies, if you wish. My guest today has written a book that takes that fretful conversation in a different direction. Rather than worrying about distraction, Jim Lang argues that we should be increasing our students' and children's ability to properly attend to things. James M. Lang is Professor of English and Director of the Demore Center for Teaching Excellence at Assumption College in Worcester, Massachusetts. Among his previous books is Small Teaching, Everyday Lessons from the Science of Learning. His most recent book is Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It, and it is the subject of our conversation today. James Lang, welcome to Historically Thinking. You bet. Thanks for having me. So um, the book is uh, a wonderful book, and partly because, uh, as we've talked about uh, before, um, the title could actually be attentive, because the book is really about how to attend to things, which is kind of a verb which I want to bring back. So um, let's begin by talking about, first, briefly, about the about distraction. Um, you talk in, I think, cha- beginning of chapter one, you talk about a uh, discussing, talking with an administrator um, who talks about, who who said very sadly, and a lot of people say this, he said, yeah, I just can't read the way I used to. Can you, can you describe that? Because that will resonate with lots of people as I think it did with me. Yeah, I was, uh, uh, this was actually at dinner with uh, someone on another campus. I had given a talk there and and we were talking about this because I was at the time thinking about the subject of the book. And he just said, you know, I, I can't seem to be able to read novels the way I used to anymore. Um, I find myself reading a few pages and then putting it down and checking my email or looking at my phone. Um, and there was this sense of sort of resignation in his tone that um, some, some skill or ability that he used to have was now lost. Uh, and that really got me kind of thinking about the extent to which this, you know, whether this was really true, whether we... Um, we're suffering some kind of architectural diminishment in our ability to pay attention as a result of the sort of constant presence of our devices. Um, so that led me down the kind of pathway to looking historically at, at uh, what people have been saying about distraction and attention, you know, for the past couple thousand years. Um, and once you start digging into that uh, research, what you find is that people have essentially been saying things like that for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no question that the that our digital devices have intensified uh, the extent to which we may feel pulled in many different directions, but but people have been feeling pulled in different directions for a long time now. Mm-hmm. I, I like that uh, phrase you just used. I, I don't know if it's in the book, but architectural di- diminishment. Could you, because that, that's very precise. Could you yeah, explain so I mean, what you mean by that? Because yeah. uh, as, as opposed to this, as opposed to that example, particularly. Yeah, I mean, so there, I, you know, there's, there's two sort of, um, there's two ways you could think about distraction having an impact, uh, a negative impact on our attention. One is sort of in an acute sense, right? Like, so in any particular moment, 
I maybe feel like I'm being pulled in different directions by my email and, oh, I want to look at Twitter and someone is at my office door. And right. So there's 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 these, these acute moments um, in the moment when I'm feeling distracted. The bigger concern that people seem to have is that there's actually this kind of long term effect that that the more we time we spend with our phones and devices, we're actually degrading our ability to pay attention. And I think that's where the kind of real fear lies. We all know we can be distracted by lots of different things in any given moment. But but I think what the what was behind that administrators, the sort of tone of the comment was, I think something has really fundamentally changed about my brain. And that, I think, is the, the real fear that people have. Uh, and you kind of hear this informally from teachers on a regular basis. The kids these days, they can't pay attention like they used to. Mm-hmm. And so... That what the what what I try to argue in the book and what I think, um, you know, the sort of research in neuroscience and cognitive psychology tells us is that, uh, and Dan Willingham is a, is a cognitive psych person whose whose work I really respect, and he points out that you know attention is so fundamental to our cognitive processes that in order for it to undergo some kind of architectural diminishment, there would have to be a kind of retrofitting of all these other aspects of our brains. So, you know, over the course of ten years or 12 years or whatever since the smartphone was invented, the human brain hasn't undergone some massive transformation. These brains have been kind of with us for, you know, 100,000 years. Um, if, if there is going to be some kind of diminishment, which is possible, right, we evolve, um, it, it, that's going to take place over generations, and many generations, and not over the course of a dozen years. Yeah, so I, I, we, I'm just thinking um, now of some sort of thought experiment, and maybe this is an actual experiment, to take me or you or that administrator. Um, I've got, um, just looking up on my right, I see uh, the full set of the Oxford uh, Barsetshire series by Anthony Trollope. Um, to take those novels and put us in an empty room uh, without access to a wireless device and see whether or not we could actually concentrate. Um as opposed to giving me uh, an iPad or a phone and giving me those novels and sending me down and say, do whatever you want. Right. Right. Absolutely. There's no, I mean, but here's the way to think about this. Look, if you, you know, set someone down um, in front of a bunch of junk food, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, be healthy. Right. Yeah. Setting healthy. Someone down yeah. in a, you know, in a weight room, right. Like saying do healthy things. Right. So right. like the thing is, when when these things are present to us, they they call to us, and they're they're yeah. persuasive in calling to us because they offer us all kinds of new and interesting stuff, kind of on a very, you know, constant basis. But it, it, it's just think about it like what I would want to say to the administrator, which I didn't know enough to say at that time is, look, I mean, you you know, you're feeling pulled to your device because you use it a lot. Put it away. And you're going to be able to read novels again. It, it might take a little while, just like it would take a little while for you to get in shape, right? Like, so if you're feeling, you know, out of shape and you, you've gained weight and you're you're out of breath going upstairs, yeah, like you're not immediately going to be able to suddenly start running, mm-hmm. but you will if you start changing your habits and doing things a little differently. Your body's still going to be there, um, available to get healthy um, once you start changing your habits. That's a great analogy too. Um, I, I love using those body analogies with students, uh, especially for some reason. My athletes pick that up quicker than other things. That, that this yeah. is what we're what we're yeah. doing here is these mental things are a lot like muscles actually, and skills are like it's like developing eye hand coordination. Uh, a lot of these things it takes time and practice and work. Exactly. 
Exactly. And if if you if you don't you know use it or lose it, um, and that applies to reading and comprehension and and distraction and attentiveness. Um, so, Absolutely. yeah. And I was just going to say, his sort of his, there, there's a kind of interesting thing in the history here as well because um, this same concern about feeling like spending a lot of time with your distractions is sort of reducing your ability to pay attention. Um, one of the most interesting, you know, quotes I found in the kind of history of this was from Isaac Watts, who, who wrote a book called The Improvement of the Mind in the 18th century, uh-huh. when coffee shops were kind of, you know, very um, uh, prominent in Europe and in, in England. And Watts points out, you know, look, don't spend a lot of time trying to study or work in a coffee shop because all those distractions um, are going to get you in the ha- they're going to get you in the habit of trifling and, and wandering, uh, your mind trifling and wandering rather than being able to focus. So, you know, a few hundred years ago, Isaac Watts is expressing the same concern. If you spend a lot of time with your distractions, you become a distractible person. Hmm. That's the exact hmm. same issue that we're hearing so much, you know, from people today who are concerned about this. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about um, Joanna Ziegler. Um, who is a colleague at, uh, well, in, in Worcester at College of the Holy Cross. And um, she did something, um, I think, really beautiful to inculcate attentiveness uh, rather than simply complain about distraction. Yes. Um, Joanna Ziegler, who passed away a few years ago, um, who was a col- uh, across the town from me at Holy Cross, an art historian. Um, she, was, she, she, to me, is the model in the book. And so the introduction finishes with her story of someone who said, look, you know, attention is essential to um, viewing art and understanding art and thinking about art. So um, rather than just kind of lamenting the, you know, distractions these days, she made attention a fundamental value of her class. And the way she did that was by assigning her students to go to the art museum every week, look at the same painting and write a new two-page analysis of it every week for 13 weeks. That's a really extraordinary um, you know, it, it, I think it's courageous in some ways, right? That, yeah, no, I, I, that's exactly when I read that, I thought I did not have the, I would not have had the courage to do that. <laughs> exactly. I, I had an art gallery on campus. Uh, my last uh, position, I could have walked easily across the street with the students. It would have been actually just 15 minutes. We could have done that. Yeah. I would not have had the courage to make them write two pages every week. About yeah. It's really okay. astonishing. And, um, and, and so, you know, she led me to kind of, looking for other examples of teachers who were saying, look, attention matters. Um, and so I'm going to create a structure either in class or in, through my assessments that are designed to, to build that skill and then reward the students um, as they are developing it. And that's what I think we really need more of. We need more of that kind of courageous thinking in terms of um, you know, putting students into context in which their skills of attention um, are really valued and are being developed. Yeah. Uh, did you did you observe th- those classes that w- when she, when she was? was I didn't that? observe her class, no. But I did observe a lot of classes while I was um, doing the research for the book. I was on our ten- uh, I was chairing the tenure and promotion committee, um, so I was just in people's classrooms all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd also sort of heard uh, some teachers. T- you know, I, since I direct our Center for Teaching Excellence, I have a lot of conversations with our faculty about teaching. Uh, and, and here and there, I'd heard people talking about interesting things they were doing in the classroom uh, and, and would just say, can I come, can I come watch? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, 
you know, two, three dozen classes probably I observed over the course of the time that I was writing mm-hmm. the book. And and all the um in all those classes, whatever I was in there for, um, you know, there was always a little part of my brain that was going like, what's happening here in terms of attention and distraction? Yeah. Like, what's the teacher doing to cultivate it? Where are students getting lost? Uh, where are they coming back in? And and that was really helpful for me to kind of get, get a good grounding for yeah, the absolutely. That I recommend in the book. Parenthetically, I, having talked with Jonathan Zimmerman, um, uh, listeners will have heard that uh, podcast a couple uh, earlier in December about the Amateur Hour, uh, his book, The Amateur Hour, and how uh, college professors have since really the beginning of the 20th century have had a difficult time in teaching, uh, if not before the 20th century. Um, it's you're, you're a very unusual professor in having gone to that many uh, classes, classrooms of other colleagues, I would think. Yeah, it's not. And actually, I think it's one of the the um, unfortunate things about our profession is that this is not more of the norm. Because yep. nothing can be more enjoyable or more interesting than sitting in the back of someone's classroom and just. First of all, it's it's great to just learn something, right? Like you know, mm-hmm. you're in a chemistry class or you're you know, uh, anthropology class, and you just hear interesting things. Uh, and of course, all of us in in this profession are people who love to learn and. Um, so that that's great. But then it's also it's really interesting just to see, like, w- what are people doing? And it, it helps expand your um, the possibilities for you as a teacher to see someone doing something that you thought oh, I never would have thought to do that. But mm-hmm. it really works. That really you know caught the students attention or um, that seemed like a great thing to do in order to help them learn this particular thing. So, you know, I think we would all be so much better off as teachers if we were in that regular habit of, of observing one another. Um, in any kind of, whether it's formally or informally, I think that that's just, it's such a missed opportunity for us as, as teachers. Yeah, we would, we would, uh, might lose our sense of isolation and sometimes sometimes a sort of helpless autonomy. Exactly. And I mean, the the challenge is, of course, it's a lot more fun to observe than to be observed. So I think that's (laughs) one of the things that, you know, maybe prevents that from happening more. Yeah. I, I have to say when I started, uh, when I started college, I, I found it useful to even listen to teaching company lectures, even though those are highly scripted. Mm. Um, some, some of them just, even though they were lectures and I soon moved away from lectures, I still learned a lot. And it was like, oftentimes I could pick up on, on certain tricks. I realized that they were doing in their classroom, uh, which, uh, in terms of repetition, uh, summarizing something at the beginning and the end of lecture, things like that, which I realized, oh, this is like getting, you know, this is like getting bagging tips from Ted Williams. Um, yeah, who would, absolutely. Turn, who would turn that you know, down? Yeah. And when I started having to give, when I started getting invited to give talks at other colleges and universities, um, I really spent time like not only watching uh, teachers, but also watching like lecturers and even mm-hmm. watching like uh, sometimes like late at night when I'm flipping around on TBL, uh, watch late, like late night preachers. And just to yeah. kind of see, because like they they are masters at like keeping the attention of their audiences, um, and it's really interesting to, to to step back and like view like what are they doing, you know, technically mm-hmm. here um, as speakers. You can really learn a lot from that. Forensics and, and, that and one, one other point about you know the observation thing. Not only did I observe teachers, but also just like people. Like when are when do people pay attention to stuff? Right. Like mm-hmm. outside of the classroom, um, mm-hmm. like in life, like what 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 seems to capture people? That, well, I've got five children, you know, who are uh, in various ages, high school and beyond. Um, so just sort of seeing, you know, when where are they distracted? When do they pay? What do they pay attention to? Students outside the classroom, uh, friends and colleagues like it's really interesting to, to do that as well and just see, OK, you know, what can I learn from this about 
um, attention that I could bring into my classroom. Well, let's talk briefly about tech bands. Um, as I said in the intro, uh, I, I'm old enough, you're old enough to remember when, uh, whether or not, uh, at the time I was a graduate student, whether or not I should be allowed to have a, a laptop to take notes, um, uh, whether that was that was permissible. Uh, we've gone a lot farther than that, but um, you don't think that tech bands are a solution. Uh, why not? Well, I think there's a few reasons. First of all, um, I, you know, I think it's kind of like a second. The, the question of whether technology should be in the room is really a secondary question. The mm -hmm. primary question is, what am I trying to do here? Like, what am mm -hmm. I trying to do as a teacher? What do I want the students to be able to do? And that's the first question that I think we we don't ask enough of. And we skip and said to the, to the second question, which is, should there be devices in the room? Well, that kind of depends on what you're doing. Um, so, you know, I teach literature and, you know, one of the classes I teach most frequently is British Literature Survey from 1800 to the present. Um, and so in that class, you know, I have to do a little bit of historical context uh, on a pretty regular basis. Um, so they've got, you know, either mini lectures or um, there might be some, you know, a few set up lectures, which are a little bit longer. When I'm doing that, it's fine. Like take notes on your laptop. Like I don't, you know, that's great. Whatever's going to be most helpful to you and be able to get that uh, material available to you when you want to study for it, that's fine. But there are other times in that class when, for example, you know, um, I always read, uh, there are certain poems that I always like to read out loud. Surprised by Joy by William Wordsworth. It's a very moving poem about his daughter. Uh, so, you know, at that time, I always will say to students, I usually do this in the class, everybody close everything. Laptops, notebooks, I don't want anything. I just want you to listen to this poem. And then, we'll, you know, we'll have a brief conversation about it. And like, so, so th that to me is what we need to be thinking more about is like, when is it right to have, when is it should be available to have devices? When are there times when I don't want that to be, I want everyone to just sort of be with their brains and their books and each other. Um, and, and one of the times when devices actually are what we need, right? Like there might be times when I um, want to have students working together on a Google doc to annotate a poem. Of course we need devices then, right? So to me, it's like, we need to think more about what we're doing and why, and then make a decision after that about um, how just devices are going to facilitate or not facilitate um, whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. So I, I much favor a sort of context dependent view of technology rather than like a blanket decision prior to the class, uh, you know, the, the whole prior to like understanding the purpose of that particular class. Now we're talking about college here. Um, your your kids are all out of elementary school, I, I, I guess. Yes. Uh, how would you feel about a tech band, say, elementary school? Um, again, I I, well, I think what you're doing when you do that is you're you're depriving the students of some opportunities to learn. Um, mm -hmm. Like I, I have no problem with. There are times when there is a tech bands, and there are times when we use technology. I mean, my wife is teaching remote kindergarten in the other room right now. Um, yeah. Those kids are, um, you know, they're learning something really helpful. And it's actually been, you know, I've been, I'm on sabbatical. So like I've been listening to remote kindergarten for the past four months. <laughs> um, and like, you know, the difference in terms of what they are able to do on the computer now between what they were able to do in September is huge. And like, that's useful stuff. So like mm. we shouldn't be depriving students of, of developing their skills and technology and, and learning how to interact with devices and all that stuff. That's important to do. At the same time, I do think there are times when we should put them away and we should do other kinds of things. Um, one of the things I wrote at the end of the book was 
look, you know, we're all with our devices all the time. Um, our phones are on us all the time. Most of us are working on computers or laptops during the day. That's fine. There's, you know, and that's the way the world is. Um, but we want to expand our sort of the ways in which we engage with like learning and work. And so that means sometimes the classroom should be the place where we expand what we are normally experiencing and put the devices away because we don't typically, we, we're not experiencing that as much outside of the classroom as we are or as we used to. So the classroom now can become a place where we're doing um, different things, sometimes technology, but sometimes not. Mm -hmm. um, well, this is one of the, this is such a great book and it's such an encouragement for anybody who's, who's teaching in the college classroom or the high school classroom and uh, feels kind of isolated and, and, and doesn't really know how to deal with this and wants to create uh, attention in students. It's such a shot in the arm. Uh, so let's talk about a very powerful idea, um, communities of attention. Uh, what do you mean by a community of attention? And, and let's talk about Stephanie Yule um, and how she went about creating a community of attention in a very, very simple, but I think powerful and deep way. Yeah. So um, what I mean by that is essentially attention is reciprocal. Um, I'm more likely to pay attention to you if you are paying attention to me. Uh, so what I think one of the first things we have to do is establish that attention is a value in the classroom. Um, it matters to us. And one of the major reasons it matters is because attention is um, a gift that we give to one another. Uh, and so that we need to be present to one another so that we're listening to one another, respecting each other's ideas, responding to them, giving each other our full attention when we're together in that classroom. Uh, and Stephanie is a historian, uh, also at Holy Cross who um, does an amazing job of kind of making sure that every student in her classes feels sort of individually recognized and valued. Um, and she does that by really focusing on student names, making sure that everybody in the class, not only does she know students' names, but that everybody in the class knows each other's names as well and uses them on a regular basis. Uh, you know, I, I observed her class on a day when some new students were coming in uh, and she actually had them try to you know, she, everybody spoke their names and then she had them try to recite everybody else's names. It was just, you know, and outside of whatever specific things she was doing, the point she made was it's really important that we know each other uh, by name uh, and that we acknowledge each other as individuals because this is a class in which we engage with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, to me, that's the first kind of fundamental, it's like the foundational step for attention in the classroom is to try and form a community in which we all agree that attention is important. And that's largely because we want to be able to listen to one another and respect one another and give each other the gift of our attention. Mm -hmm. How does she do that? I mean, how does she, I mean, does she, she's memorizing names probably based on, thank God now we have photographs of students and we can memorize yeah. their names much easier than ever before. But how does she get other students in the class to memorize each other's names? That's always been, I've always found that the hardest thing to do. I think she actually like has them like they have to recite each other's names like, like it's like a memory test they have to do. <laughs> this is what she did for these uh, students on the you know who who were joining the class like a week late or something like that. They actually had to you know practice saying everyone else's name in the classroom. And so again, like to me, this is a great example of if this is important to you, you've got to like build a structure for it. You've got to like yeah. you know do it do something that is in order that's going to enable them to do it. So. You know, there's lots of, there's actually a lot, there's actually a, a, a surprising amount of literature about how to help learn names and uh, both hmm. 
students and teacher out there. So um, I just encourage people to Google that. Even in large <laughs> classes, actually, there's a there's a large uh, set of articles about how to learn names of students in large classes. Or um, so and there's good we'll resources out there. For people. We'll have to link to that in the show notes. Um, I, uh, you know, one of the wisest advice I got, I, I think it might be from Mark Salisbury, who's often on the podcast or has been on the podcast, was that um, the first 10 minutes of your class tells the student what the rest of the class is going to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the first day of the of the semester tells what the rest of the semester is going to be like. And how do we usually, you know, sort of how had I traditionally approached the semester the way that I had as an undergraduate, where in some time, like around Labor Day, we go for the first class, the guy will pass out the syllabus, talk about it for 20 minutes, and then we leave early. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a very bad lesson they were teaching me about what the rest of the semester would be like. Absolutely. I, yeah. I had to stop doing that. And of course, yeah. Stephanie, what she's doing is she's saying, this is the first thing we're going to do is we're going to learn each other's names because this is a community. And the most important thing here is to be able to speak to one another as persons. It's a very yes. powerful message to have in the first 15 minutes of the semester. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that's your, I made used to make the same sort of mistake about the first day of the semester. <laughs> realize now that, you know, the two important things for me on the first day are um, do there's three, three, actually get them doing something. Like whatever yep. it is. There's, they've got to do something. Focus on something interesting or something they can be curious about, something that like, you know, um, will engage their attention and then, you know, do something to build the community. Um, if those three things to me are now the priority on the first day. The syllabus is like a secondary thing. Like we might not even get to it until the end. And they can go on their own and talk about it on the second day. Um, yeah, for me, I, those three things are really important. I realized that if that was true, the first thing I wanted all my students to do in every class was write something. Yeah. That would, that would show them what I thought was important and what they would be doing. So that was like the first thing. As soon as they get settled down, you know, if they don't have paper and pen, or pens, those will be available. But they're going to start writing immediately. And yeah. that will set, that'll set a tone. I think, you know, when you walk in and just hand out that syllabus, it's just like, okay, it immediately shifts. It, it establishes the dynamic. I'm up yep. here in charge. You sit there and be quiet, right? Yeah, and read right. and look at stuff. Um, so, yeah, I don't hand out the syllabus at the beginning of class anymore. And I could just kind of see them. You know, they're a little baffled by that. They're kind of just sitting yeah. there expectantly waiting for it. But but that too sends a message, right? Things in it here does. are not going to be like exactly um, what you expect. Um. So let's move on to this. Uh, I, the idea, the next thing: curious attention, um, eliciting uh, questions, and how to do it. Which is, you know, I, I think probably the for me has always is the perennial challenge of how to do it. Um, knowing names is the is the necessary first step. But you cite some wonderful examples. One by uh, Mariah Crawford, and how she would elicit how she elicits questions. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, the, in, in terms of the literature on attention, um, one of the things that, that, that really stands out for me is the fact that curiosity is a driver of attention, right? So, like, if you're curious to, to know something, um, you're going you're gonna to kind of uh, funnel your attention toward that thing and, and be able to sustain it in a way that you probably won't if someone's just saying, this is important, learn this. Right. So like um, we want to think about how are we making questions a priority in the classroom, both the posing and answering of questions. 
Um, I, in terms of the big picture, I think what we can do is um, we have to make sure that we're thinking about not so much, um, here's the information I'm going to give, but here's a really interesting question. Uh, and if you start um, thinking about this question and, and you become interested in it, the course is going to provide you with the information that will help you resolve that question. Uh, on a smaller level, things like Mariah Crawford has done is to say, you know, at the end of a class um, or at some various points throughout the semester, tell me what your questions are at this point. You know, we've been doing complex stuff in here. This is, um, you know, th this material is, is complicated. I, I know that you have questions and confusion about it. Um, so everyone uh, write down your questions on an index card. Uh, I think she actually has the students then exchange index cards so that they are asking uh, other questions, each other's questions, which is a way of like, so the students don't feel like they might be asking a dumb question or something like that. Um, but it's just, again, it's like one of these things where it's like, okay, I, I want to hear what the student questions are. Um, and so I'm going to create like an actual activity to make sure they come out. Uh, I'm dedicating 15 minutes of class where students have to write down an index card and then I'm going to go through them and answer them. Um, yeah. So to, to me, just sort of both trying to intrigue students with questions, but then also saying, okay, I'm going to pull the questions out of you as well. Like, I want to know what the questions are. Um, and so that curiosity, that questioning, that drives attention. Yeah, I love that activity of hers. Uh, I've done something similar. I, I would, uh, you know, asking a good question is a fundamental part of historical thinking, it's, it seems to me. And so what that was trying to um, teach how to ask good why questions rather mm. than boring who and when questions um, is sort of, I think, is something I, I always strove to do. And that was actually one of my uh, pieces of homework um, was to bring your best possible why question to class when we're discussing a, a primary source. And oh. sometimes I wish I had had them switch. That's a really good idea. And to sort of edit each other's or to figure out how to improve questions, have them do that first, I think would be a really helpful way. Then I would, uh, then they would ask those questions and we would, I would put them up on the board and we would sort of divide them into matrices, you know, and, and, and different parts of the text. And then we'd go on from there to try to answer the why questions. Yeah. So, and that, you know, that, that's a great exercise. And, and what she's doing as well is another great exercise. And two, I would also say, you know, linking back to what we were talking about earlier, that's a moment where you say, okay, nobody needs your device out, right? All we need here right. is a card and like our curiosity. And then yeah. I'm going to put a bunch of stuff on the board. Then I'll, you can get your laptops out. And if you want to write any of it down, that's fine. Right. But for like 15 or 20 minutes, let's just like be here with our brains and our curiosity and our index cards and the board and see what we can come up with. Like that's mm -hmm. a great opportunity to um, to give students really the kind of joy of attention and creative thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, then to get back to the previous thing, it's a very helpful thing then to have know their names as well. <laughs> for that for that instance and to be yes. able to uh i think it's doug lamov says the most powerful technique in any classroom is the cold call uh, mm. uh which i think is very true um, yes absolutely i've i've learned that i, I learned that as an undergraduate i tried to forget it and then as a teacher i realized that i know the cold call is a very powerful but you, you need to know people's names uh, absolutely. And, have, and have the courage to do it yes and you want to be invitational about it uh, ken bain who wrote what the best college teachers do um, always says, you know, you can cold call as if you're challenging someone to a duel or as yeah. if you're inviting someone to a feast. And we mm -hmm. want to make sure that we're inviting someone to a feast when we cold call. 
Yes, I remember a dear Professor Robert Forster, who always would very genteelly, at least twice, say, so Al, what did you think about this? Something like that, as if he was really inviting me. But uh, everyone was dreading that moment where he was going to ask you specifically about the reading. And you knew that right, master, right. master the reading. Right. Um, so uh, structured attention. Um, you have a lovely section where you talk about how you've polyphonic polyphonically structured one of your classes. Could you explain what you mean by polyphony in this case? So actually, yeah, that um, interesting, uh, that chapter actually kind of emerged from a night that my wife and I actually went to the symphony. Um, and I was again, you know, kind of deep in thinking about the book. And, um, and I was kind of noticing like the way that, you know, a conductor uh, or a composer kind of keeps, attention throughout this sort of, you know, longish couple hour experience where we're all just sitting in our chairs, staring at the stage. And the same is true for a playwright and a director. Like what are the things they do in order to keep our attention sustained throughout these longer periods? And I mean, you know, I noticed in, in a couple of core things here. First of all, there's change, right? And variety, like, so, you know, um, like a composer, you know, typically you go to a symphony, there's going to be like a, sh like a short, modern piece right uh and then there might be like a second one that's a little bit longer it's got they've got changes in for, you know the instruments the the there's variations in the tempo um and then there's a break and there's breaks between them and there's like gonna be this longer piece right where you've kind of worked your way up to it um but even in those longer pieces right they're going to be in movements so there's intermissions and there's, there's change um from one movement to the next similarly with the play right like you've got changes in scene and setting and um you've got uh, the, you know as you're going from act to scene to scene act to act there's little breaks there's intermissions all that stuff so so it, it occurred to me that you know we really need to think about how we are providing change and variety um over the course of a classroom period um so you know the problem with me that i view um in terms of structure is People always say, well, yeah, you know, you can't lecture for 50 minutes or 75 minutes. Students can't pay attention for that long. It's hard to pay attention to anything for that long, especially when you're being cognitively challenged. And that includes like a discussion or like an active learning uh, exercise, like having students solve problems or something for 45 minutes for an hour. And I absolutely observed this in the classes that I was watching, you know, where some of them had a great activity they were having students do. But, you know, it went on for 45 minutes and students just started to drift away because mm -hmm. that's how attention works. It's very hard for us to pay attention for really long periods of time, especially to difficult cognitive stuff. So, you know, what that tells me is we need to make sure that we're thinking about our classes in a, a more kind of modular way so that, you know, we've got certain kinds of, you know, activities that might take 5, 10, 15, even 30 minutes, whatever it might be, but that we're being deliberate about trying to you know, vary them uh, and making sure that there is kind of regular structure and change. So I might begin class with a five minute writing activity. We have a 15 minute discussion of it. Then I'm going to do a mini lecture and then we'll finish with some final closing thing. And it doesn't have to be manic, right? Like we don't have to be constantly changing. Um, but having two or three, you know, sort of modules over the course of a class period, thinking deliberately about how attention is going to be impacted by uh, the change in uh, in between these modules and and like the differences between them, alternating active and passive, individual and group, all that kind of stuff. Uh, to me, I think we have to do a little bit more of that kind of thinking in order to help keep student attention 
throughout the class period. Curiosity yeah. can help capture student attention at the beginning of the class period, but we've got to keep it up. Uh, and yeah. so structural thinking to me is the best way to, um, to, to, to figure out how to do that. I thought of it as creating a liturgy. Um, oh, would, yeah. Yeah. And that would be, um, but rather than do the same thing every day, then I thought of how do I structure the week? So uh, if I'm meeting right. ideally Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I, I wanted a student to be able to say, oh, we're going to Zambones. It's Wednesday. Therefore, I'm bringing this. I have to have this ready. And it's Friday. So therefore, we're going to be doing this. Um, At, uh, yes. And, you know, that's a good point, too, about like the structure of the semester also, the, mm -hmm. the semester, because, um, you know, I'm sure most of us have the experience that in a 15 week semester, you get to week 10, 10 to 12. And it's just like, oh, man, we are like in the slump here. Oh, yeah. You've got to think structurally about that as well. What's going to go on in those weeks that, that you can use to kind of renew attention? Um, what kinds of creative techniques can you, if you've got a great teaching technique, it's really creative and that's the time to use it, right? Yes. <laughs> because that's when you know they need renewal. Do something so, exciting in the two weeks before spring break at that point where basically there's a, there, there murder could be, you know, could happen. In a, in exactly. a classroom it's like, yeah. I remember wa walking into my classroom and looking around in like March in, in Indiana, it was a dark Indiana winter and thinking, Okay, this is about. I'm just about the end here. I, I, I've had <laughs> yeah. about as much as I can take. Um, I always, yeah, I, I always feel like in week ten to twelve, like you know, they're kind of looking at me, going, "Is this all you've got?" I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm kind of looking at them, going, "Yeah, I feel the same way." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like. I don't like your faces either. Yeah. <laughs> But then, um, you know, when you get to week 13, it's like, oh, this is almost over. We had such a good time together. It's, right? uh, <laughs> it's a very strange thing. It turns, yeah. April 1st comes around, all of a sudden, it's like, ooh, you know, and then it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, spring semester is a very strange psychological time. I, I'd love yeah. to see some really good studies on that. Um, so can we, uh, do you have Mary Oliver in front of you? Because uh, you, you, you use uh, the, the, uh, her poetry to great effect. Um, and I, I wonder if you could, uh, you're the English lit guy, so I think you should read a poem for your supper. Um, <laughs> yeah, could, okay. Could you read um, my poem? I do have Mary Oliver in front of me. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Let me see about what I think would be the best one to read. Okay, so what I'm going to just read here is, is an excerpt from a, a longer poem called Sometimes. Uh, this is a multi-part poem from Mary Oliver. Uh, this is the epigraph for the book. Four lines, it goes like this. Instructions for living a life. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. And I actually think that is a great summary of what we are trying to do in education, right? Um, those steps you could look at is kind of summarizing pretty well our objective. We want students to pay attention to whatever it is we're teaching, to the important stuff in our discipline. We want them to be astonished by it. We want them, wow, this is amazing uh, you know, that literature can do this or that these things happened in history, um, whatever it might be. And then we want them to tell about it, you know, to tell us what your perspective is on. That's why we have them write essays and take exams and do presentations, right? So pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. For me, that that's just like a beautiful little summary of, of what we're asking of our students. And it's not a bad way to think about how to live a good life, too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. Um could you talk about the, you talk about signature attention activities. Um, how, what's the, how do we, uh, how do we teach focusing and then connecting 
through these signature in, in, in a signature attention activity. Yep. So signature attention activity for me is, is precisely the kind of thing you want to think about during those slumps of the semester or uh, those times of the semester when you might be starting to lose the attention of your students. They're creative pedagogical strategies designed to kind of get students uh, to renew their attention to the kind of uh, wonders of the discipline or to the experience of being in your classroom, uh, whatever it might be. So um, these are, uh, you, you kind of, one way to think about how to develop uh, a signature attention activity as a teacher. Um, I talked in the book about um, this process of, uh, that, that came actually out of uh, looking at objects, right? So like how you uh, carefully study an object uh, in an educational environment. Jessica Meltzer from Brown University, um, I'm drawing inspiration from her work here uh, and had you know, participants in a workshop actually go through these three steps when you're thinking about like um, an object. First, to look carefully at it, like, and like really carefully, like what is it, what is here? Um, describe it with all the detail and attention you can bring. Um, then the second step is to um, say like, okay, so um, what's important about it? Like what, what, what does it connect to? Like, um, why does this thing matter? Um, so, uh, you know, expanding beyond the object to connections, uh, the things that other things that it might be related to. And then lastly, now what? Like, so as a result of my looking and thinking about these connections, what questions does that raise? What else might I want to research about it? Um, so again, this kind of three-part process of look carefully, think about the meaning of it, and then expand and find what you have to um, offer or say about it. So I think we can actually do that with anything. You can do that with a problem. You can do that with a text. You can do it with an object. You can do it with any aspect of your discipline that you want to renew student attention to. Uh, it's the first step that sometimes I think we have trouble trying to identify. Like, how do we get students to really kind of dig in, sort of put away the sort of, you know, the filters or the blinders that they usually have when they're looking at this familiar thing and say, no, I am really going to get close on this thing. Um, and in the book, I talked about a theology professor who had students sit across from one another. Um, I read the first few paragraphs of the book of Genesis and stop after every sentence and say, okay, what do I see here? What word stands out? What, what does this remind me of? Uh, what have we talked about in class that this relates to? Uh, and that was, a, you know, I observed the students doing this, and it was a really eye-opening experience to see um, how students could do this, again, when they were given the opportunity and the structure to do it. So so signature attention activity for me is um, one that you develop um, out of this kind of process. So how have you, how have you tried to implement this in your own classes? How, how have you done that? Not Through, to put you on the um, spot, I, but to put you on the spot. Yeah, so it's... Actually, I love my own simple way of doing this is this uh, like a good old fashioned annotation worksheet, you know, where hmm. I'm going to give students a, a passage or a poem or something. I put them in groups and I say, annotate the crap out of this thing. I want you to think of every possible connection, meaning, question that you might have about what you are seeing on this page. And don't stop, like keep going. I want you to fill up, you know, there might be a 10 line poem on a single piece of paper, and I want you to fill the margins of this paper with everything you can think of. Um, and once we've done that, then we get together as a group and say, okay, what'd you come up with? And then we start doing the work of sifting and saying, all right, well, you know, that, that relates to your particular childhood, but maybe it's not something that's relevant for 
uh, all readers of this poem, or yeah, that's a really interesting um, insight that comes out of, um, you know, that several groups have pointed out. So, so that's probably a, a you know, more legitimate idea to pursue in relationship to the poem. So, so I love that. Um, and the other, the second thing for me is the, these connection notebooks I use mm. students um, at the end of a class period, uh, write a, a one paragraph response to a question, which is designed to get them to think uh, about the, what we've done in that class, uh, how it connects to some larger issue. Like how does this, what we talked about today relate to something you learned in another class or how does it relate to some bigger social or political debate we're having right now? Or how can you connect it to something, some personal experience that you've had in your life? And again, it's just sort of take this thing and now you're going to look at it through a different lens, right? And that different lens is designed to renew attention. So, so, so those are two sort of pretty frequent things I like to do in class. What, what about um, connections between, uh, say, one, you mentioned Wordsworth's Surprised by Joy. Um, what about making connections between two poems of Wordsworth or three poems of Wordsworth? Or... Yeah, yeah, actually, that's a great, um, so I, that's one of the connection notebook exercises I frequently do um, is I'll say, okay, you know, today we read Wordsworth. Uh, well, was used at the beginning, but so like I might do it later in the semester. We've, we've read Gerard Manley Hopkins mm-hmm. and I'm going to say, okay, now I want you to, everyone get out your syllabus or get it up online. And I want you to pick any other day of the semester and relate Gerard Manley Hopkins to one of these other, to any, you know, just look at the, the, the names of the writers that we've read previously and tell me how Hopkins relates to any one of these other writers, either through comparison, contrast, whatever it might be. Um, and that is a great, uh, you know, way to, to, to create those connections. It's also a great learning tool because it's like mm-hmm. getting back to previously learned material, right? Which is yeah, what students have to do. It's fantastic on so many different levels. For one thing, I mean, it's a cognitive move that I, we take for granted, but it's really hard to teach. Exactly. Yes. Um, and again, if you want it, you know, if you want them to be able to do that kind of thinking, you just, you got to practice it. You got to get yep. it practice in the classroom. Yep. Well, um, I want to get up to, uh, uh, before, as we're wrapping up, I want to get to, to one uh, topic um, that people might say, well, this is so great. Um, we're going to teach attention. Why ruin attention with such quotidian things as grades? It just doesn't seem fair. Um, yes. So, so why shouldn't we eliminate grades even as we're trying to emphasize attention in the classroom? You know, especially now during this pandemic, we kind of see like how much um, other stuff is going on in our students' lives. And um, I think one of the things that assessments can help do is help students recognize where should I be paying the closest attention in this class? So if I'm going to do an activity in class that um, I know is going to help my students learn, I don't think there's any reason not to, to reward students for an activity like that by putting a little bit of stakes on it. So, you know, these kinds of activities where I have students do worksheets, um, those are gonna contribute to the students' participation grades in the class. And I'm not gonna grade a, you know, a brainstorming worksheet that they did in groups in class, but I am gonna say, you know, there's a, um, at least once a week, students do a writing activity in class uh, and that count, each one of them counts for 1% essentially. So there's 150, you know, 15% of that. I'm gonna count that participate, that group worksheet toward their writing activity for that week. Just because I want to, you know, I know that if they can get in the habit of doing that kind of brainstorming, it's going to help them when they have to, when they're confronted with a poem and have to write an essay about it. So Mm -hmm. like the things that are going to be helpful to them, um, I think an assessments can help orient students towards 
uh, their attention toward those things. And there are some students who, you know, are going to be really distracted because of stuff going on in their lives or they're overwhelmed with school. And they might just normally check out of an activity like that and just you want to sit back and do nothing. But if I say, look, this counts toward your participation grade today, so just a good faith effort, suddenly those students are just are just going to sort of get over the threshold. And then that I know is ultimately going to be helpful to them. Um, and, and, and people often talk too about, so that's the first thing. The second thing is people often talk about, you know, ultimately we should be motivated by our intrinsic motivation, by our love for the subject matter and our love for learning. And that's certainly true. But I think we can oversimplify that and say, you know, only intrinsic motivation is good. Um, it's, it's also true that, you know, sometimes extrinsic motivation is helpful for us and it's good, right? Like if we, you know, there are lots of people that um, use extrinsic motivators to work out, for example, right? They give themselves reward for doing it and they have little badges and things that they try to get and certifications and they do things with other people to help um, keep them motivated. Of course, you should work out. You should be intrinsically motivated to work out and be healthy because, like, it's good for you, right? But sometimes you need a little bit of a push from your from an extrinsic motivator, and I think the same is true here. We should actually be kind of mixing the motivations that we um, yeah. the students, and I think assessments can help um, some students kind of get over the threshold of uh, of participation um, in in a class. And so, to me, that's part of the package of stuff that we can be using to help students learn. Yeah. Um the the idea that we're somehow going to find intrinsic motivation in ourselves immediately when we start uh, a difficult process that's just crazy we won't we won't think about that for anything else. exactly um yeah that's not the way high school sports worked um right. and there's a reason for that uh at some point you did you found joy even in a workout um you know i just worked out today and i found joy but it really is great having a coach uh to help me with kettlebells uh, right. and to show and to watch my form um uh, and likewise um that's true for everything including intellectual pursuits um yeah i, mean, that's, I, don't, yeah. I don't know how your dissertation was but intrinsic motivation didn't take me through all the the entire drafting of my dissertation oh absolutely not right yes i, I don't i'm pretty sure i would not have finished that project if there was not a degree coming at the end yeah <laughs> right? exactly yeah yeah. And the and the whole um, you know I've thought about this a lot is 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 you know, we we people have said a lot of silly things to to about you know the way that we write and uh, at some point I realized that I had been thinking that uh, writing was like waiting for inspiration it was like a clipper ship waiting for a breeze and what I really was was a, a ugly coal powered tramp steamer that <laughs> just did ten knots but did it every day. Yes, yeah, that's what yeah. I really wanted to be. And that um, and that takes a while to get yourself to that point. Yeah. And typically we often for that kind of thing, too, we, you know, we give ourselves little rewards. Right. Like I did yep. my I did my 10 knots. So now yeah. I get to go do this. Right. Or like. Yep. So, yeah, that's pretty, yeah. And then, I mean, this, again, thinking about the exercise, I mean, people often will say start exercise programs by saying I'm going to run a 5K right in three months. So yeah. I've got to get ready for that. And that's an extrinsic yep. motivator. Yep. 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 Um, you uh, end with a, a beautiful um, vision of a classroom as an attention retreat. Could you describe that? Because I, I, this is actually, in many ways, that that idea is what I want people to read the book for, is to capture that sort of vision of what the classroom could be. Yeah. So what I meant by that, um, as I said earlier, too, a little bit, was that 
you know, in our daily lives, we are so sort of surrounded by distractions, um, and especially now too during this time period. Um, you know, there's so many things that are that are, first of all, sort of externally distracting us, right? Um, and that's all, you know, our devices and phones and all that stuff. But then we have our internal distractions as well, um, all the worries and concerns we might have about what's going on in the world around us, um, in terms of both politics and health. And um, you know, I really believe that one of the sort of the the easiest, uh, most available routes to most to 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 a lot of us is 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 learning. Learning is like a joyful and satisfying experience, um, and learning depends upon our attention. So we should think about our classrooms as places which in which we can kind of retreat from um, this this world of constant distraction around us and really settle our attention on something important or beautiful or intriguing and help one another learn. Uh, I just, I love the idea that, you know, when we get into that classroom, it's a different place. It's a place that's, that's not what sort of we're normally experiencing it. And it's just like a retreat, right? Like you go to a retreat um, and you kind of put all the sort of worldly concerns away from you and you just have an opportunity to kind of, whatever you're focusing on that retreat, um, to, to try and work on that. And I think we can think about our classrooms as the same way, as, as this place where we go to to escape um, all the distractibility, uh, the dis distractions around us and focus on something that really brings us joy. Um, I just want to conclude by um, sort of relating this to your earlier book, Small Teaching. Um, you know, when I uh, started uh, college teaching and I realized a lot of people from my cohort, we complained a lot. Uh, we complained a lot, but we didn't actually do much to address the things that we complained about. Um, and I, I, at some point I realized this, we were practicing unlearned helplessness. Mm. And uh, we we're making ourselves miserable too. But we weren't doing anything to make us less miserable. And we weren't doing anything to make our students better people, to be blunt about it. Um, and at some point, I had to figure out, well, what can I do right now from where I am with what I've got? And that was sort of my moving beyond that sort of learned helplessness. Um, people are going to, college teachers uh, are going to be listening to this and think, well, that's all lovely, uh, attention retreat. Haven, blah, blah, blah. But I can't really do anything about that. So what small things can we do to start making a move towards become making colleges? I mean, <laughs> making uh, your classroom, if not your college, an attention retreat. Yeah, I mean, I think the most, the, the, the sort of fundamental thing is to just to sort of start to say, okay, attention matters. And Attention is not something that we should take for granted. I think ultimately we tend to think about attention as being like the norm and distraction is the falling away from the norm. But actually, I, I would suggest that people need to think about it in the opposite direction. Um, distraction is our norm. And it's always been our norm. Like our we have distractible mind, we've always had them. Attention represents these kind of, these moments when, when we rise out of this kind of sea of distraction and are able to focus our mind on something in order to achieve whatever goal that we have set for ourselves or the teacher has set for ourselves. I really th believe that, you know, everyone can kind of undergo the process I underwent here and just start to say, okay, attention matters in this classroom. 
And I'm just going to kind of start thinking and looking around to see like, how do, what are the ways in which attention can best be supported and sustained? And like talking to your fellow teachers about it, like looking at where you pay attention in your life and where you get distracted, looking, observing other people around you and just kind of saying, all right, um, we need to make sure that um, we're providing the supports and the strategies that are going to help make it a priority in the classroom. Um, there's lots of, you know, obviously practical suggestions in the book. There's lots of, you know, good research out there on how to do this and from a variety of different resources. So, you know, just for people who are going to be teaching, you know, maybe in the spring semester, just sort of, you know, begin and even in your the language of your syllabus, put something in there about like, you know, for example, if you're going to have a technology policy, write that policy in such a way that says, the reason we have this policy is because attention matters in here. I want us to listen to one another. Um, I want um, you to have my attention and I want to have your attention, right? And so this that's why we have these particular policies, whether it's about our devices or how we have discussions or the way I'm going to mix activities in the classroom, whatever it might be. Talk about it. Like, I'm going to do everything I can in order to support your attention. Um, and I look forward to us working together on this. Start with the syllabus. Right. And then from there, I think you'll find it start to ripple out into other aspects of the course. My guest today has been James Lang. He's the author most recently of Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It. Jim Lang, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. You bet. Thanks. Great conversation. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.